We're actually studying the book of Romans, and we've studied all the uh, various gifts listed there and in several other passages. But this morning, we do need to look at the sign gifts here in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a passage that's very often misunderstood. That's largely due because the charismatic movement has had a large influence now on our society. And much of what is understood on these things tends to be based on experience rather than what the scripture actually says. It's a tragedy that uh, most people tend to do that. They, they listen to something, they have an experience, or they have a friend who has experience, therefore that is truth, rather than actually studying what the Word of God says. But our basis of truth must come from the Scriptures, regardless of your experiences, one way or the other. Experiences can fool us. We don't want to be fooled. We want to know what God has actually revealed to us and then live accordingly. Paul introduces the topic of spiritual things here in verse 1. And it's in response to a question that they had. You see there in verse 1 it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now Paul is explaining to them about the pneumaticon. These are spiritual things. The word gifts is not in your text. If you notice, it's in italics, or it should be in italics. That's not what this word means. Now, the context of the whole passage lets you know that Paul is going to be addressing spiritual gifts, but that's not the specific thing he's dealing with. They are only an aspect of the whole topic of the pneumaticon, the spiritual things, and that's really how you could translate it and probably even be a little better. The spirituals, the spiritualities, the spiritual things. Because Paul's interest here is on being spiritual as opposed to being carnal. And Paul has this topic running from here in chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14. It's all one section. It's all the same subject. Paul has done this throughout Corinthians. He introduces a topic at a time. Here we have three chapters dealing with one topic, spiritual things. Now, spiritual gifts are a part of what we need to understand. But more importantly is the aspect of the spiritual nature God has given to us and how he wants us to live spiritually as opposed to the ways of the world or the ways you used to live. The priority is given to living towards a a godly manner. And that's spiritual, isn't it? Now, the Corinthians were not ignorant of spiritual gifts themselves. Over in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul specifically mentions there that they were not lacking in any gifts. They had them all. They knew what they were. Their ignorance was in the purpose of those gifts and how to use them. Now, in verses 2 and 3, Paul reminds them of their pagan past. And the Corinthians were pretty notorious. Now, if I mentioned a place like Las Vegas, some of you go, whoa, now that's an evil city, right? Or some of you might think of some other cities. The worst city you can think of Corinth had it be. It was a nasty place. And Paul's reminding them of the kind of worship they had there as pagans. And so in verse 2 he says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is a curse, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now why is Paul reminding them of this? Now what does that have to do with spiritual things? I thought we were going to get the spiritual gifts and all that stuff. What is this introduction for? 
It's because much of the problem they were having in this area was similar to the problems they were having in all the other areas that Paul's correcting throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. They were taking pagan practices the way they used to live and trying to bring it into the church and live accordingly. They weren't changing their practices. They were dragging these old ideas and practices of paganism right into the church and then thinking they were spiritual. Notice again how Paul puts this. When you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols however you were led. The King James puts it this way. You were carried away, and that's probably a, a better way of understanding the verb here. It's you're just kind of moved along. You don't have a whole lot of action. You're carried away like a, a wave or a river would take you away. You're carried away into these dumb idols even as you were led. And that pictures the pagan mystery religion's practices. The worshippers were caught up and carried away in emotional hysteria. It'd be either an ecstatic state or it was the mystical experience of what's called enthusiasm. Now, the pagan worship in Corinth gave great value to the state they called ecstasy. And the person that entered it was held in very high esteem by those who achieved it. It was considered the ultimate in their religion to achieve this state. It was a condition viewed as supernatural. It was a sensuous communion with their deity. And through frenzied hypnotic chants, through their various ceremonies, the worshippers would come to experience a semi-conscious state a euphoric feeling of oneness with the God or the gods. The ecstasy might take the form of either a trance or a trance-like state. In the case of the worship of Aphrodite, it would manifest itself in unrestrained sexual orgies. They were gross. And so to help a person achieve this state, various practices were developed so they could get there. It might include vigils, fastings. It could be the contemplation of some sacred object. It could be chanting. They could even use drunkenness, drugs, to get to that state. They could use physical exertion. There was kind of a whirling dance they would do until they basically were so exhausted they could reach the state. Those kinds of things are still done in pagan religions today. Now, similar to this state of ecstasy, and sometimes accompanying it was a condition termed enthusiasm. The participants would become involved in divination, revelatory uh, dreams and visions, Plato and Virgil both record these kinds of events and they describe them. And they said that the people get so caught up in this emotional hysteria they'd fall down, shaking, and then they would be babbling along in ecstatic speech. All those practices are still common in pagan religions today. It still happens all around the world, these same pagan practices. Now, because these things appeared to be supernatural, in a sense you'd have to say they were. These were demonic in origin. They were supernatural, even if they're bizarre to our minds. Because of that, it had a very strong attraction to people. If I could achieve this, I must be better than everybody else. I'd achieve a higher state in my, my religious practices. And some of the Corinthians confused the miracles of the Holy Spirit with these practices. Remember that Satan is a deceiver. He's not called an angel of light for nothing. That's his disguise. And he will mimic the things of God in order to bring people away from what's truly to God to something that's false. And as verse 3 indicates, if they were in this state, they had a toleration for a person even if they were blaspheming. Look there again at verse 3. He says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. Now, apparently there were those who were supposedly speaking by the Spirit in whatever manner they were doing it, 
but they were in fact blaspheming the name of God. Now this verse is not saying that somebody cannot say Jesus is Lord as a non-Christian. That's not what it's saying. There's actually it's a cult group that they think they get people saved by just getting them to say those words. That's not what Paul's saying here. He is saying that a person cannot say Jesus is Lord if they're supposedly in the Spirit. That's what they're going to say. They're not going to say blasphemous things. The emphasis is on the opposite. If the Spirit is controlling you, what are you going to do? You're going to praise Jesus Christ. You're going to glorify Him. But if it's some other spirit that's controlling you, you might blaspheme Him. And that's exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. They actually were blaspheming Christ and thinking it was worship of God. Now, into this, we, Paul then brings in the whole idea of spiritual gifts. What is the origin and the purpose of these gifts? So starting in verse 4, Paul moves our attention to this question. And he tells them where these gifts came from, where the ministries came from, where the effectiveness of those ministries came from. Because at this point, according to their pagan religions, they had to work themselves up to it. And Paul says, no. These things all come from God. Now, we've looked at these verses before. Now, in verse 4, we find the gifts, charismaton. We get a word charismatic from it. And it means grace gift. It's the same for all Christians. We all get a gift of grace from God. As it says here, there's a varieties of gifts, there's many different kinds, it's the same Spirit. And this is all up to the Spirit as He chooses. So every Christian has been given a spiritual gift or gifts by which they are to serve the Lord. And there's all sorts of spiritual gifts, and we've looked at that for four weeks already. That all comes by the same Spirit. Now in verse 5, we find that there are also a variety of ministries, but it's the same Lord. But he is going to choose different gifts for different people and a variety of ministries by which those gifts will manifest themselves. We've already seen that in the many gifts we've studied. Ministries vary according to age groups, according to uh, the setting. It could be old people in a public setting. It could be uh, an old folks group. It could be the children's church right now. Downstairs there's people teaching them. There's some people working in the nursery. Some people like going out on the street. There's all sorts of different ways any particular gift could manifest itself. There's different kinds of ministries. And then in verse 6, he says there are um, a variety of effects, but it's the same God who works in all things. So again, God is the same for all Christians, but the effectiveness of these different gifts and the different kinds of ministries is all different according to who? God, right? It's not something you work up. It's according to God as he is desired for you to serve him. The effectiveness could be uh, maybe it's just one-on-one. Maybe it's a small group, a little uh, Sunday school class or a home Bible study or a little discipleship group. Maybe it's something larger. Uh, You've got a, a bigger Sunday school class or you have a, a church like ours or maybe it's even larger. There's thousands of people in this church. Maybe it's a regional ministry, a national ministry, or even international. All sorts of different effects. But who's that up to? It's up to God, isn't it? So different gifts, different ministries, different effects of those gifts. But the bottom line is that God has gifted every believer to serve him for a purpose. He has given them gifts, whatever they are, whatever ministry, whatever effectiveness, according to his will, not your will, his will, for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Verse 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's the purpose of all spiritual gifts. For the common good. Last week, Jerry Smith pointed that out so well from Ephesians 4.12 and verse 16. 
The gifts are for the purpose of building up the whole body of Christ. It's so that all of us can become more like Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of every gift. Now, what are these manifestations of the Spirit, though, that he mentions here in verse 7? These outward evidences of the Spirit. Now, in Galatians 5, Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit. You should be familiar with the passage, the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that give evidence that the Holy Spirit is controlling your life. Now, in this text here, the evidence is any gift given by the Spirit manifests itself in any ministry with any effectiveness is also a manifestation of the Spirit of God. That's how it's presented here in 1 Corinthians 12. Which gift manifests the Holy Spirit in a person's life? Again, the text is clear. Any gift. Any gift. I would add that any gift being manifested, if it's not also displayed with the fruit of the Spirit accompanying it, that's probably not a manifestation of the Spirit. You may be doing it in the flesh. But any gift done in the manner that Galatians 5 tells us, the fruit of the Spirit, is a manifestation of God working in your life. Now, understanding this, then we understand that the Pentecostal doctrine on this issue is simply wrong. They teach that speaking an unknown tongue is the manifestation of the Spirit, or it is the being baptized by the Spirit. But if you get over to verse 13, you see that being baptized by the Spirit is for every Christian. You're baptized by the Spirit when you're saved. They're simply wrong on this. It can be any of these gifts is a manifestation of the Spirit. So any gift in any ministry with any effect demonstrates the Spirit, and its purpose is for what? The common good, the building up the whole body of Christ. So there are no insignificant gifts, there are no insignificant ministries, there are no insignificant people in the church. Every person, every gift, every ministry, every effect of those things is important for the church to be healthy. Again, their purpose, caring for one another, worshiping God, building each other up, declaring the message of salvation in Jesus Christ from sin by God's grace through faith in Him. Well, what are these gifts? There are spiritual gifts. What are they? Now, we've already studied Romans 12, 6 through 8, and that mentions prophecy and service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and mercy. And we've also taken a look at gifts of preaching, speaking, helps, and administration that are mentioned in a couple other passages. Now, again, if you, want, if you miss those sermons, pick up the tapes. I'll send you my notes. You can get them online, too. But there's all sorts of different gifts. But because those gifts there differ in their order and what's mentioned from this passage and from one another, I believe that God never intended us to understand what all the gifts are. They're given as examples for us to get a clue of how we might be able to serve Him. Knowing your gift is the important thing. Serving the Lord is the important thing. So they're simply examples, and I hope that our study so far has somehow stimulated you to think of how could God use you? What are some different ways? And they can be all mixed up together. But it's unique, and God's doing that, and he wants you to serve him. Now, a gift may be similar to a natural talent you have. In fact, it it may use a natural talent you have. Then again, you may have a natural talent, and you don't have a corresponding spiritual gift. You just can't do it. Because the thing that marks out a spiritual gift is this. Is God using you in that particular area to glorify himself? That's the question. It's not whether you have an ability. Is God using you to be able to do something? You may not have a natural talent in one area, and yet God will use you in that. That's up to God. 
So your gift, whatever it is, is going to help the rest of the body of Christ become more like Jesus Christ. And that includes helping those without that particular gift fulfill the commands that each of us has as Christians in that particular area. And we've gone over that the last several weeks. Every single gift we've looked at so far, there's a corresponding command that all of us as Christians must do. Every Christian is teaching somehow. Every Christian is supposed to be helping one another somehow. Every Christian is to have mercy upon one another somehow. Those with those gifts have a greater effectiveness, and they're actually the ones that will help us learn how to do that. Some of you don't like going to a hospital. I didn't necessarily like going to a hospital. I actually went with someone who taught me how to go to a hospital and not pass out. Right? Do you ever feel faint when you go to a hospital? You just walk in, take one deep breath, and you get a little woozy. Well, you know what? It really helps to have someone who has a gift who just thinks this is great. You know, lines going into all sorts of body things that you don't even want to talk about. And, you know, is, I don't even like picturing it, right? Someone who doesn't mind that can take you in and hold your hand and say, you know what? You, you have a need to be merciful because, you know, this is your relative, not mine. So we will help you learn to be merciful, right? That's how the gifts work. It's not just one person does one thing and you don't have responsibility in that area. We all have responsibilities in all areas. But the person with the gift will help all of us learn how to do what we need to do in every area. They're just more effective at it. Okay? And we covered that for several weeks, so that's probably enough on that. Now, getting back here to 1 Corinthians 12, we find that the spiritual gifts listed here are broken up into three categories. Now, that's not clear in the English translation, but it's very clear in the Greek because of the different pronouns used. Now, the first category are those gifts related to knowledge in verse 8. They're related to uh, the intellect. It says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now, these two gifts appear to be related to the office of apostleship, which is uh, mentioned in verses 28 and 29 of this same chapter. Now, the first one is word of wisdom. Now, all Christians can ask God for wisdom. Doesn't James uh, chapter 1, verse 5 tell us that? If you lack wisdom, ask from him and he's going to give it to you. And then there are those, even today, that God has just granted a great wisdom beyond the ordinary. And those are the people we like to go to for counsel. We want their wisdom. They, they understand things and they can see how it applies. But the word of wisdom is a special provision beyond even that. It is related to Paul's earlier discussion all the way back in chapter 2. And you'd really need to do a whole study of 1 Corinthians to see this flow. But in chapter 2, Paul is communicating there and talking about his ability to communicate what he called the deep things of God. Chapter 2, verse 10. It is this ability to receive and then pass on God's mysteries at the time that God revealed it to a particular individual, as happened with Paul. Paul speaks of this being done to him specifically in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. God revealed things to him and he passed those things on. Peter speaks of Paul doing this in 2 Peter 3.15. And so it has an apostolic nature to it. Now the next one, word of knowledge also appears to be apostolic in nature and it pertains to God granting insight to an individual to grasp the logical nature and the relation of truths that have already been revealed. Now these are those things that God has, uh, or we should say, God has granted people intellect even today, right? There are people that uh, can write theologies. There are people that do these marvelous studies uh, expositing a, a particular book of the Bible. 
And that's, that's good intellect, that's knowledge, but that's not this gift. Because this gift is beyond that. The New Testament epistles give evidence of this gift and work because it, what it takes is the truths already given, the Old Testament, and gives us the insight of how all these truths fit together and are fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament prophets didn't understand that. And we would not understand it except that the apostles wrote these epistles for us to explain it to us. In fact, the book of Hebrews is probably the the prime example of this word of knowledge being uh, written down because the writer there goes back and explains all of how all these Old Testament practices, these ceremonies, were, were shadows of the things fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They were already revealed. This now explains them. God granting insight to the individual to put all this stuff together. Now, there are those that would claim to have these gifts today, and certainly, again, there are those that God has blessed with great wisdom and some with great intellect, but is properly disputed whether these people are gaining direct revelation from God in either manner, as did the apostles. No one today has the authority to say is, God told me to tell you this is what you have to do. No one has that authority. All the authority that we have is the word of God by which we, according to 2 Timothy 2.16, do what? We teach or instruct, we uh, correct, we reprove, and we train in righteousness. We take the word of God and say, this is what God says. How are you applying that? What you're doing doesn't match this. But what's the authority? It's what God has already said. And we're just going right back to the book. Anytime anybody gets trapped into one particular person's theology and, and that becomes the final word instead of the scriptures, there are serious problems. You've got a cult group beginning or already developed. Every theology ever written must submit itself to the word of God. And there isn't a theology written yet that doesn't have some problems somewhere because it's written by a man. The word of God doesn't have that problem. We go back to the word of God to explain theologies. Okay, it doesn't mean you shouldn't study it. See what people have written, that's fine. But you're going to be comparing it back and forth to go back to the Word of God and what does this say? Those things only should be helping us understand this. So it is my belief that the Word of Wisdom, Word of Knowledge is not active today as it was in the time of the Apostles. Now the next category, gifts related to faith, verses 9 and 10. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy to another distinguishing of spirits. Now, faith is the general category and it is the most general gift within this whole category. This is a faith that goes beyond that common faith that God has granted us by His grace to be able to believe what He has revealed in His Word. This is the gift that enables the Christian to proceed with daring and resolve and surmount any obstacle that might be opposing the work of God in any particular area. And this is the only gift listed in this passage that I do not believe has become limited in some way since the apostolic period. Because there are still men and women of great faith that just amaze us and go on. And there is nothing that we can find in this text or I've ever found in any other text that says there's been a limitation on faith. Now the next gift is gifts of healings. And that's proper. It's plural. It's gifts of healings. Plural. Now, this is related to faith in that it rests upon a basic confidence in God. That's what faith is, isn't it? A confidence in God. And its operation, though, is specific in one particular sphere resulting in miraculous healings of various kinds of sickness and disease. 
Now, both nouns are plurals, and that indicates that this category is probably one of several different kinds of gifts related to healings, different kinds of things. It was demonstrated again in the lives of the apostles. In Acts 3, you have uh, Peter and uh, John are near in the temple, and there's a man who's been lame since birth, and he's begging for alms. And they say to him, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have give I to you. Rise up, right, and be healed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they picked him up, and man, the guy was happy. <laughs> he was healed immediately. There's nothing dependent upon this man's faith for his healing. They had the power to heal at will. Later, over in Acts 5, we find that people were bringing the sick ones out, hoping that Peter's shadow would pass over them. Okay, that is acting very differently than what was going on in our own time, where people claim to have this gift. These men were healing people of things that cannot be faked, unlike those who claim to have this gift now, where they can be faked and often are, and often proven to be faked. I've always said that if someone actually has this gift, I would like to know why they're not going to the hospitals instead of trying to have a healing service where they get everybody worked up emotionally in order to have something to happen. You know, if my headache's gone, Lord, you know, they're faked. This gift operated differently at the time of the apostles. Now, that's not saying that God can't do anything he wants anytime he wants. He can I have seen God graciously answer prayers, according to James 5, and heal people in a miraculous way. But that was God's mercy. That's God doing what he wants as he wants, according to his own character. That's not someone who's demonstrating they have this gift as the apostles had it. The other thing that's important to understand about this gift is that it was done to demonstrate the power and authority of the one who was doing it to give an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. And that's how Peter and John and the other apostles constantly used it, and Paul. When they did this, it was so they could have, uh, win a hearing for the gospel message. You see, there's a lot of these things that can be done by demons. It is done, and that is something that we need to acknowledge. There are miracles that take place around the world of this nature, but they're not done to the glory of God. They're not done by those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. They're demonic in nature, not that from God. Remember that uh, in Revelation, some things to come, there's going to be the beast. He's going to have a fatal wound and it's going to be healed. God doesn't do it. Our adversary does. The next gift is similar, affecting of miracles. It's a general category of faith and it refers to being able to perform some overtly supernatural event. This gift is also seen in the apostles such as Peter, who raised Dorcas from the dead, Acts 9.40. Paul blinded Elamas, the sorcerer, Acts 13, 8-11. It was used in the same way as healings because it won the person an audience, a, a hearing for the gospel. That was its purpose. But again, it's something that we know that demons can mimic. Even back in Job... There are some supernatural things that happen, including a wind that destroys the house and kills Job's children. It mimics the things of God. Things to come in Matthew 24, 22, Jesus warns us there will be those who are going to show great signs and wonders, false prophets, false teachers, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Paul warns us in 2 Thessalonians 9 and 10 about the activity of Satan to come that will be working through the beast. 
the Antichrist, and he's going to have all sorts of powers and signs and false wonders. We have false teachers and false prophets with us today. They're still with us. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3 tells us that. So we need to be careful of these things. Are they done in the same manner as the apostles, for the same purpose as the apostles? If not, don't believe it's the same gift. The next one is prophecy, and here it is referring to a gift of faith that resulted in what was miraculous. Uh, the word is used differently here than it is in Romans when we talked about prophecy earlier. Here we're talking about someone who could predict the future or had a revelation of the mystery or had the ability to perceive the thoughts and the modes of other persons. In many ways, this gift was also apostolic because there were several that demonstrated this gift, but there were also some others that weren't apostles that demonstrated this gift during that period of time. For example, uh, Agabus, Acts 11:28 and 21:10, foretold Paul's imprisonment. He foretold there was going to be a famine as well. Judas and Silas, Acts 15.32, are called prophets, as well as in the same passage, there are others, they're just unnamed, just as in other prophets. And those with this gift did not have the authority of the Old Testament prophets or New Testament apostles because their prophets were to be judged. 1 Corinthians 14.29 tells us that. These prophets could not always give the prophecies interpretation or application. Acts 21.4 and 11-14 through 14 tells us that. Now, there are those who claim to have this gift today, too. But as we've already pointed out, if they claim to do so, they need to meet the test of a prophet. All the way back in Deuteronomy, which is what? 100% accuracy, 100% of the time. And I have yet to hear of any such self-proclaimed prophet who can do that. Have you? 100%, 100% of the time. They, in fact, prove themselves to be false prophets and worthy of God's judgment. The final gift in this in gifts related to faith, is distinguishing of spirits. Now, this is more than discernment. Every Christian is to be discerning. That's a responsibility we have, is to learn the Word of God and become discerning. First uh, John 4, 1. We're expected to be that way. This gift is also related to faith, and especially in passing judgment on the source of an utterance given in an assembly. It was especially important before the New Testament was written to have someone who could distinguish his is this guy speaking from God? Is he speaking for himself? Or is he speaking from our adversary? Someone had to be able to do that, and that's what this gift was related to. Paul demonstrated this gift over in Acts 16, 17, 18. Paul is um, busy preaching, and there's this girl who keeps following him and saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And we think, well, that's great. The problem is that she's doing this by demonic power. And even if it's the right thing they're saying, do we need demons advertising us? Paul didn't think so, and so he cast the demon out. But there's discernment there. Where was this coming from? So that's the second category, gifts related to faith. Now the third category are gifts related to communication. Verse 10. To another various kinds of tongues and to another interpretation of tongues. Now we could spend a whole sermon just on this because there's so much that's misunderstood on these two. But that's not the purpose of our study. But even with all the confusion that commonly exists about them, these two gifts are not hard to understand. They're really not. Tongues is the word glossa. It simply means language. That's all it means. And so speaking in various tongues or an unknown tongue means to speak in a language that you do not know. Interpretations of tongues is being able to understand a language you do not know. So you have various kinds of tongues and you have interpretation of them. 
It is not ecstatic utterances of glossolalia. It is not babbling. It is not gibberish that's often promoted among many church groups. Now, why am I so confident with that? Actually, it's fairly simple. Both the purpose of tongues and its practice in Acts demand that tongues be actual languages. The purpose of tongues is found over in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verses 21 and 22. Paul tells us their purpose. He quotes from Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, By the men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to the unbelievers, but to those who believe. And then he goes on. Now, even a cursory study of Isaiah 11 shows it was a sign to the Jews of God's judgment upon them when God would start speaking through the Gentiles instead of them. The first fulfillment of this was Acts chapter 2, and it makes it even more clear because in Acts chapter 2, it lists out what tongues were spoken. Starting in uh, verse 8, it says, How is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. It lists them out. These are known languages. It's not nonsensical babbling. It's speaking a language you do not know that makes sense to someone else who knows that language. So to be biblically speaking in tongues, those who claim to have this gift must speak in a language unknown to them but known to others' presence, just as it says here in Acts 2. They also must be speaking of the mighty deeds of God, which is what Acts 2 says they were doing, which is also what... 1 Corinthians 14, referring back to Isaiah 11, says they'd be doing God speaking through the Gentiles, unknown tongue to the Hebrews, the mighty deeds of God, proclaiming his excellencies. It also needs, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22, needs to be done in the presence of unbelieving Jews. That is the purpose of tongues. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Paul states that tongues would cease. Now, the verb there is middle reflexive. It means in and of themselves they will cease. Their purpose will be fulfilled, and so there's no reason for them. Why? Because the purpose has been fulfilled. Judgment has come upon Israel. The church has been born. And they could see that because now it's the Gentiles proclaiming the things they were supposed to proclaim but didn't do it. The judgment's come, and so the purpose is fulfilled by the end of the apostolic area. Now, are those that would claim that tongues is for private prayer language. Now, that's contrary to the whole basic idea of gifts, isn't it? What is the purpose of all gifts? Common good of the whole body. Ephesians, for the building up of the whole body. Paul uses sarcasm throughout chapter 14 to point out the selfish nature demonstrated by the Corinthian practice. Some even thinking they were doing this. They were selfish because no one else understood what was going on. They didn't even understand what was going on. And so Paul even tells them in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 and 15, that to pray in a tongue is fruitless because you don't know what you're praying. He instructs them specifically, pray with the spirit and with the mind. Both go hand in hand. You need to know what you're praying. 
In addition, tongues is assigned to unbelievers, not self-edification of believers. Now, some have tried to equate this with the Holy Spirit's intercession in Romans 8, 26-27. We've already studied that passage, but as we saw in that study, who is praying there? The Spirit is. With what? Groaning's too deep for words. There are no words. It's too deep for words, and it's the Spirit that's doing it. It's not tongues. It's not some individual babbling. Now, one other simple thing for this. Let me ask you a simple question. Would you really want to speak to God and not know what you're telling Him? Especially in light of what Paul already said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, or 12 here, that there were Corinthians doing this and blaspheming Him. Do you want to be blaspheming God and not know what you're saying? I don't want to do it if I do know what I'm saying. I don't want to blaspheme God. And that's what was going on. So this really is not that difficult to understand. Now, most of the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 are no longer active in the church, and watch this, in the same manner as it was at the time of the apostles. God can still do anything he wants, anytime he wants, any way he wants, as long as it's in keeping with his character and what he's already said. Those are the only restrictions on God. So if he wants to do it, that's up to him. But the particular gifts are not manifesting themselves now the same way they did at the time of the apostles. The apostles finished their work. They laid the foundation. They gave us the word of God. It's our responsibility to know this because that's how God's revealed himself to us. So as the New Testament was completed, the apostles passed away. The reason for these signed gifts also passed away. The manifestation of them ceased. And historically, that's borne out. Now there's another thing we need to deal with here. And that's using your spiritual gift. Because we've got to get practical here. How do you do it? How do you know what you're doing? How do you know what you're supposed to be doing? Now, the first thing to understand is, don't be concerned about labeling your gift. It doesn't really matter if you know what it is. Because the important thing is serving the Lord. Not saying, I've got this gift or that gift or something else. It's serving the Lord. Period. Now, to serve the Lord, you must start with your walk with the Lord. Right? You've got to have a living, vital relationship with the God who created you. Are you studying your, your Bible? Are you praying? Are you seeking Him out? Are you worshiping Him in your daily life? Are you walking with the Lord? Next, as you walk with the Lord, you find out, well, what do you desire to do? And that's the wonderful thing about um, Psalm 37. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because as you walk with the Lord and you're delighting in Him, your desires change to match his desires, and God grants what matches his will, doesn't he? So what do you desire to do as you're walking with the Lord? Next, you've got to try an area of ministry. You've got to serve him somewhere. How can you know how the Lord has gifted you if you never tried? You can't know. Too often it's fear that keeps us from the blessings that God would have for us if we would just trust him Step out in faith and try something. Now, it may not work. You may find that's not where God wants you to serve him. Okay, at least you tried. You try something else. And then finally, you evaluate the effectiveness of it. You serve the Lord in this area. Did it help other believers walk with Christ? Did it proclaim Christ to unbelievers? And did more mature people recognize this and basically give you a stamp of approval? Yes, we can see that God's doing this. It's not a self-evaluation. That's part of it, but it's to see that other mature believers also see that God is doing this through you. It has to be evaluated. Now, I did not know that I could teach until I was challenged to do it. I tried it. 
It was fearful. I did it with trepidation. In fact, I put it off for a long time, but I had two guys kept working on me. And then I saw, you know what? God did allow me to affect other people. And I found I actually enjoyed doing it. And then as time went on, I learned better how to use this gift and develop it. Because really, your part is simply to be faithful in using your gift, learning how you can do it better all the time. It is up to God to open doors of ministry and make you effective in it. You just need to be faithful. And then the last aspect of determining where you should serve the Lord is, I call this the the, uh, joy compulsion level. Because either you're going to have a great joy in doing it, and so it's hard to get you not to do it, I, I kid the Robin sometimes. They got Awana Star and said, there's no way you're going to get them out of Awana. They enjoy doing it. They've, they've been doing children's ministries for many, many years now. It's an enjoyable thing to them. We had some people singing up here earlier this morning. You know what? They enjoy doing it. But there are also times when you have to do a ministry that, you know what? It's not so joyful. But you're compelled. You think back to Jeremiah. God gave him a very specific ministry. I want you to go preach to a stubborn and obstinate people and they won't listen to you, Jeremiah. What kind of ministry is that? Ugh. Does anybody really want to do that? I just can't wait to go to talk to people and put my life on the line because they're not going to listen to me. It doesn't make sense, except that God told him to do it. And so Jeremiah said he, he didn't want to speak, and so he withheld it. He said as he held the message of the Word of God in, it was like fire in his bones. It was compelling. He had to get it out. And so there's a compulsion sometimes in the area of ministry because it may not be necessarily a joyful thing in the experience of, of, of doing it. But there's a compelling thing of I need to serve God in this area. And any joy that comes, comes because I now know I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do. And that's what pleases you because I'm pleasing God. Now in the bulletin today, we've again included the sheet on how to, can God use you. Front side, some biblical commands, admonitions concerning serving the Lord. Also some general suggestions. On the back are more specific suggestions on how you might be able to do different things here in this particular church. But these only scratch the surface. There are thousands of possibilities on how you can serve the Lord. Now, there's also a place in that sheet you can fill it out if what you'd like to do, what you'd like to try and think about doing. Fill it out, give it to me, put it in the faith box or see the person be approached to that ministry and let us help you try it to see if that's some place the Lord would want you to do. Now, weekly, I'm going to be putting some things in the bulletin that are very specific. One thing I have in the bulletin this week, we need someone to take over our website to, to keep it updated and design it. There's some things we'd like to do, but I can't do everything. We Someone who'd like to fool with that, we can get you the software. If you don't have it, you can work on the computer here. We'll set you up at home. We need someone to do that. That's an opportunity in ministry. But someone has to step forward and say, I, 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 I'll, I'll try it. I might mess it up a little bit. Well, okay, we'll fix it. But how do you learn if you don't try, right? I'm going to be doing that every week. We're going to have some specific thing in there about opportunities to serve the Lord. So fill that out. Give it to me or the appropriate person. But the real question comes in, then this is, what are you doing? How are you serving the Lord currently? What is it that you're doing? And then, is that really where the Lord wants you to serve? Or maybe there's something else the Lord might be putting in your heart. You have a different desire. It was, what will you do? What kind of ideas are coming into your mind? Are you considering something else? And then, when will you begin it? Because thinking about it isn't going to get it done, is it? There comes a point in time you have to step forward and serve. But that's where the joy comes from, isn't it? To see that God, the creator of the universe, 
uses you. Humble creature, frail human, and he uses you for his glory. That's exciting. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for your blessings to us, for the very fact that we have the privilege of serving you. It's not something we've earned. It's not something that uh, we do by gritting our teeth and trying to do something. It's something we do in faithfulness to you, simply seeking to be your servant. Even as Isaiah said so long ago, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, use me, however you would desire. Father, may that be the prayer of every person here that knows you. And Father, for those that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ yet, may today be the day of salvation as they think through the sacrifice made on their behalf that they might have a purpose in life in glorifying you, the creator of all things. In Jesus' name, amen.